What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, we're back, not in the Shire, but in the Lord of the Rings realm. How you doing, man? Middle Earth, baby. Ready to forge some rings, some powerful rings at that. Let's go. We're, we're in Middle Earth. We're in your earbuds talking some music, some Emmy nominations today. We got a lot of uh predictions coming your way as well as a, a a list that maybe people who listen to the podcast weren't expecting so if you want to stay tuned for all of our content hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod or go to our twitter at nostalgia pod and go to our link tree where you can follow the podcast any way you want to dave lord of the rings the rings of power dropping its first two episodes this weekend been a long time that we've been anticipating this series it's finally here it's hard. It's hard for me to talk about this because uh, uh, I think uh, talk about it without comparing because I think that's one of the the things of the weekend, right? Is uh, Amazon has tried to make sure that all of the reviews that are coming in for the show are are legitimate reviews because they yes. uh, supposedly were being bo- uh, bombarded with fake reviews, negative reviews about the show from uh, Game of Thrones fans and. It's in my my head. It's it's always been Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, both dropping in or close to August of 2022. The fantasy genre just going to be stepping up its game at that point. So it's hard for me to kind of separate them. But I really found myself enjoying these first two episodes. I, I felt totally transported back into this Lord of the Rings world. I was happy to have it back, but it's hard for me to look at it and not also compare it to the game of thrones episode we watched last night and just think about how different these two shows feel to me Mm -hmm. did you have that same experience yeah i mean it's it's impossible not to compare the two um they're also inextricably linked because game of thrones came to be largely in part due to george r R. martin's fondness for the work of J.R.R. tolkien so you know lord of the rings is the is the godfather of fantasy storytelling just as, as it is so whether it's direct comparison because we're literally watching a similar show in some ways at the same time, or just more uh, high level viewing, it, it, uh, thinking it's it's not hard to, or I think I think it's very hard to uh, try and differentiate your opinions on different things. But I also think the shows are still plenty different in how they go about lots of things. That there's definitely room to enjoy both and different things about them that are both done very well. So. I'm a big fan of House of the Dragon thus far, and I'm a big fan of The Rings of Power thus far, and I am just can't believe that there's a Lord of the Rings TV show, live-action TV show, that looks this good and is ripping this hard so far. Like I'm a gigantic Lord of the Rings fan. The, the movies were very foundational to me, and just to be back, like I, I really felt transported, and you could, I think, really feel and sense the the care that was put into the rings of power, which I think is a really welcome feeling for, you know, hardcore fans that would love to see a return to middle earth, but also really want it to be done. Well, I think the, um, I think the, the choice in the first two episodes to not only introduce us to a lot of new characters, which we obviously knew was coming, but to kind of base the show around some, 
characters that anyone that's watched the movies would know. You know, there's a lot of people who are fans of Lord of the Rings movies that maybe aren't as familiar with all the books. Obviously, this one is based off of the uh, History of Middle Earth book by Tolkien. It's not based off of um, stuff from the Lord of the Rings books. So there's uh, The, the appendices of Lord of the Rings more specifically than anything else. And notably, the Silmarillion, they don't have the rights to. So this whole like Second Age Middle Earth storytelling thousands of years before the Lord of the Rings story everyone knows. They don't actually have like the full full bag to dive into Amazon in terms of the rights from the Tolkien estate. So they're kind of working with, I think, a uh, uh, limited set of true source material. But also there was not a lot of specifics really detailed at, around this time in the timeline from Tolkien, which I think also makes it really ripe for an adaptation because there is room to just go around the canon or or make you know there, there is no canon to break in mm-hmm. in certain sense so but yeah it's um i think like you're saying it, i think it's unique and and new enough due to its canonical uh uh historical uh time but also has familiar faces that i think are really awesome to see and do a great job i think of grounding you in the past but also giving you a sense of familiarity and like things to look look ahead to and 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 that you might already know about so yeah i think i think it's a really nice choice of how they've kind of placed the lord of the rings adaptation in the uh timeline of like the the canon and the lore here and to uh just kind of take that a step further uh morphid clark um who plays Galadriel, who if anyone that's watched the movies would know is Kate Blanchett's character or is played by Kate Blanchett in the, mm-hmm. the movies. And then you have um, El- Elrond, who yep. um, Hugo Weaving uh, portrays in the, the movies. And you have Robert Arameo, young Eddard Stark, right. uh, showing up to, to play this. And um, I-, I think they were probably the two characters uh, actors that right away just jumped off the screen and you know if, if you're a lord of the rings uh, producer for this show you have to be thrilled by their performance in these first two episodes because if it feels like they're like the two that are probably gonna be anchoring this along with a couple of other ones mm-hmm. and the fact that they were just head and shoulders to me like the most interesting characters and the ones that i wanted to spend the most time with i think is a huge success for them I, obviously it's only eight episodes um, so these first two, I think they really needed to do a lot of ground laying, plot, uh, plot laying out, and then kind of get you familiar and, and buying into some of the characters. So I thought they did that really effectively, and that starts right off the bat with Galadriel's, you know, childhood with her brother, uh, him going into the wars against Sauron, and then his death and how that propelled her on the path that she's on. And Elrond is a bit, a bit more of a um, a bit more of a journey with him in the, these first two episodes. I thought the first episode did a pretty good job kind of getting a sense of where he stands within the kingdom and like his role and, and his relationship with, with Galadriel. But then the second episode, when he goes to, to the, the dwarves is yeah. like, that, Moria, that's what it really took off for me, man. That was awesome. Oh yeah. Too. And I think anyone who's a fan of the fellowship of the ring, like it just made my jaw drop to like be in Khazad doom, be in yes. Moria when it's not just a ghost town filled with goblins and, and skeletons. It, it, it's in its prime, this famous fabled dwarven kingdom. Like, one of, my, one of my favorite lines in Lord of the Rings is when Gimli is, like, hyping up this this 
journey to Moria for the fellowship. He's like, my cousin Balin, you know, was there 50 years ago, wherever he says. And it's like, yeah, we're actually seeing like what it was. And we actually see Durin, you know, Durin, mm-hmm. our famous figure. Like seeing how Elrond fits in the in the uh, society of of his his sect of elves there. Yes. He's chopping up with Gilgalad, one of the most famous and fabled elves of yore. Like we're seeing people that are like like name dropped and referenced in the text and in the movies. Actually, we're going to see some of that stuff, and I think like it, it, to me, it's just, it's just very very exciting. Um, yeah, but I agree. When when we got to Casa Doom and we saw. Elrond really like chopping it up with the dwarves there, like th- that just felt. It just really, it really felt transportive to Middle Earth, and I think in general, a lot of the writing of this show is really matching. I think the the vibes that you want from from Middle Earth that we've experienced before with Peter from Peter Jackson, and yeah, I mean the the visuals too. Whether it's whether it's going to the Dwarven Kingdom, whether it's being out at sea, the the, the Sundering Sea when. Galadriel obviously does not go to Valinor and, and in turn comes back to Middle Earth. Whatever it might be, the the expense that Amazon has doled out for the Rings of Power is visible. You can tell that they put some coin into this. They of course went back to New Zealand to film this, and it really looks like that. It it's really I think given me given me that vibe. And there was multiple moments throughout these first two episodes where I was just like just so so pleasured so happy so joyed to like be with these moments or these characters and just be in this world i think they've done a really good job right off the bat of making it feel like middle earth yeah i agree and i think what's really nice is um you know when you, you jump into the lord of the rings trilogy um sauron is obviously already established and there's this like Basically, that Middle Earth is this like desolate place that's just been decimated by his evil and by all of his deeds. And to see it be so like vibrant and flourishing in this time and to really Mm -hmm. kind of like just you get a sense that this is different, but you still have those through lines and it still has that same vibe of the movies. And I I think that that's probably what was most successful to me was I really did feel like, okay, I'm back in with like the Peter Jackson movies. Obviously, there's different different flourishes. There's a lot of moving parts to this because there's so many characters doing so many different things that will obviously be coming together at some point this season. I'm not sure how quickly, but um, I still was just really impressed with their ability to make it feel so familiar, but still new in a lot of ways. Um, Tell me about the the characters or the themes or even like scenes from the first couple episodes that really stood out to you that you found yourself enjoying most. Yeah. I mean, I watched this with my brother who, like me, grew up on Lord of the Rings trilogy, and we both, like, like gasped when Elrond just, like, meets Celebrimbor, meets the, the Ringmaker. Like, we just see him right there, and we're obviously building up to, as the title of the series suggests, we're building up to the creation of the Rings of Power, which will then enable Sauron to secretly create the One Ring. People know the drill, I think, but we're going to build up to this, and, like, there's, there's so much from that is barely touched upon in, in the Lord of the Rings. Cause of course we're, we're thousands of years in the past from that story, but kind of building up to this conflict with Sauron and the, you know, the last Alliance of, of men and, 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 and elves that we see in those flashback scenes. Right. Um, we're going to see the Numenorians before they're all gone. We're going to see Elendil and the Sealdor and stuff like just, just, just knowing like where it's going, being familiar with the lore, but also just literally seeing that, how they're laying it out, you know, 
we have open hint of the dwarves discovering Mithril in Moria, which of course we know will lead them to the dig too deep and uh, discover something they wish they didn't discover, as we know from the Fellowship of the Ring. There's like I feel like just like seeing all these like little like crumbs laid out there is just very exciting, and I'm really just captivated to find out how will uh, Sauron come into play because he's not going to come back into the screen in his like famous you know dark armor form that people know he's gonna come in his his fair form uh his uh anatar i think was the name that he, he's gonna be like deceptive and and then try and befriend the elves and like i just want to see all that that palace intrigue the politics of elven society because like you said in this version of middle elf the elves are a lot more uh prominent and uh prolific in the uh in the in the realm in the world and to see how that uh changes due to due to Sauron's uh, dirty deeds is going to be going to be fun. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I'm not as big of a uh, Lord of the Rings fan as you, so I think for me, um, what I found myself like being drawn to most in all this was just seeing all the character interactions. Like, I was just delighted seeing Elrond and Durin's like uh, back and forth when you know he's like, "You missed my my wedding. You missed the birth of my children." Like, Amazing that was actually scene, like, honestly. yeah, incredible scene incredibly moving like it actually i think for anybody that um has like gotten to a certain age in their life where they've had friendships that have kind of gone and come and gone in waves that like feeling of like this person's still my friend of course they're going to be there for me and then like that realization of how much you miss over time and how like friendships are more than than just you know saying that you're a friend it's actually putting time and effort and it was really like uh, i thought an amazing scene and just so well acted and it felt like real you know in a sense it yeah. was like oh this is actually like the, an interaction i could see someone having in real life um obviously not uh going to a dwarven kingdom but you know everything else right. around it um and even before that when they're they're breaking the stones like in yeah. I, I wish we got a little bit more of like seeing them like going through it but we, you get the gist of like how taxing this is how long it went on and um i just thought that was incredible you know how he had to invoke that like I don't know, whatever that is, that competition yeah, like in order trial to by combat type thing. Yeah. Exactly. I thought that was great. And then I I mean, going back to the two characters that stood out most to me, all the stuff with Gal- Galadriel in the first episode and her choice yeah. before she's able to go into whatever that is, like Elven Valhalla, whatever. Yeah. The Undying Lands. It's like yes. it's like Lord of the Rings Heaven, basically. Yeah. Um I I loved her like choice to like jump off and then, you know, she's just at sea like she's treading water for a long time and now she's at sea trying to find her way back i thought that was just really great you get that like cool like a sea creature scene kind of fucks everybody up um yeah i mean uh, a little bit of a callback to dune a little bit with like the the sea worm i guess but sandworm yeah yeah. worms are or whatever to me uh but yeah I, i just i loved all this stuff dude it was so fun to be in this world yeah, I think they did a really nice job, too, of establishing the scope and the size of Middle-earth, because I thought it was very noticeable that uh, Gladriel doesn't cross the sea by the end of episode two. She's at sea the entire time. I think we've grown, grown a bit accustomed to, in other IP shows of characters kind of traversing distances as needed by the plot and kind of being there where they need to be. But we're actually putting in the time to see Gladriel making the choice she, she needed to make. But then having to deal with it and just being completely effed at sea. Yes, she's an elf, 
she's not gonna get sick and die. She's still get eaten by a fucking sea, sea, sea creature, though. You know, yeah, it's, it's not all roses. But uh, and yeah, I, I think probably the the Elrond Durin stuff is probably the best thing so far, just because I think that's like you said, it's an awesome like real like grounding feeling as a viewer to see. And also, like, makes really complete sense in terms of a way to, like, express the lore. It's like, these elves don't die. Mm-hmm. So they have a very different way they approach things in life than right. other characters that are not basically immortal um, yeah. to, to, to aging. So, And it just immediately that, yeah. brings you back to that Legolas-Gimli relationship, even though it's not them. But, like, obviously, I think one of the standouts of of the movies was seeing that interaction and just their, their constant back and forth throughout the battles that like levity that they brought. And I think, you know, going back to my idea or my kind of how I set this up with like, how does this compare to Lord of the Rings? Uh, You know, it's fantasy brethren and streaming right now. Um, I think what I really found myself more impressed by with uh, Lord of the Rings is just the ability to like, enjoy the world more. You know, I think with when mm. it comes to Game of Thrones, it's right. so cutthroat. And, and House of Dragon has been incredibly cutthroat. And there's very little levity in the show so far, which is is fine. It's still an incredible show. But getting those those moments to laugh and to feel like things aren't so serious constantly. Um, I think I think the king of uh, House uh, Viserys, House to targaryen right now sorry would uh prefer to be in the lord of the rings world than in his world for the time being because uh a lot lot more a lot less uh stress going on in the in the world of lord of the rings at this point but yeah i, I just i liked that a lot more it felt like a better hang at points for me yeah yeah i think so and a big part of that of course is the harfoots on the show which are kind of the precursors right. to the hobbits um i think this is kind of like hashtag reasons why they don't just call them hobbits but um, if, if they're serving the same purpose. I think the Hobbits are, in the films, huge aspect of the series. Obviously, Frodo's like the main character, but like the way these these halflings, these these little, non imposing people interact with the world and with these other characters, um, I think it, it is always a huge way to like kind of round out the storytelling of Lord of the Rings. And of course, Sam is is like the ultimate hero, basically, of the story by the end there. But having the Harfoots on the show, it's kind of doing the same thing where it's like giving you these unimposing, non-threatening people that don't seem to have much knowledge of the rest of the world as well. And now they're thrust into this uh, crazy situation. Nori is anyway with this, uh, this stranger character, which we do not know the uh, identity of this, this, this man who fell from the sky. So it seems Um so I thought that the the Harfoot stuff was quite effective so far, and then I guess perhaps like the the wait and see storyline is the one with um like down like I think it's the Southlands where you are, where it's like the elves are kind of watching over oh, like with the, the, the Arendir and and Arendir, who's a new character. Yeah, and I did like some of the kind of like societal cultural stuff they threw in there, where like the men called the elves pointies in like a pejorative sense mm-hmm. and then you see it later on where Arendir is talking to like his commander there is a open distrust the elves have for the men and it's almost like a racial thing you know uh, I guess mm-hmm. not that dissimilar to the elf uh, dwarf relations and I think seeing how that is uh, demonstrated and of course Arendir 
seemingly is more uh, sympathetic to to the to men than uh, his his peers there. Seeing where that's going, I think has a lot of opportunity for giving you a little different flair than we've gotten in in the Lord of the Rings movies. Lord of the Rings movies, with the extended editions, we're talking like a dozen hours, but still like. They only could service so much. We're going to see so many other parts of Middle Earth that are like barely seen during the War of the Ring time because they just weren't as affected by the plot of that time in the story. So, um, I just it just really feels like there's a lot of uh, care and thought put into where they're trying to take uh, Rings of Power, and that more than anything else, I think, is what's really uh, heartwarming. And it it was really uh, disappointing to see some of the like backlash to the series after it premiered there has been a huge racial component racist backlash to this series which i think is just really really unfortunate and sickening because every everything i can tell this show looks like exactly what we asked for yeah but there are people that uh are just just terrible people regardless yeah unfortunately it's uh definitely uh sad to see the the unwarranted backlash and people just you know with these like we mentioned at the beginning spamming these reviews just so annoying that this kind of happens whenever there's two good things out that are in a similar vein or you know one has to like be brought down in some sense dave as a big lord of the rings fan though i want to just ask you is there anything that you are hoping to see from the lore of lord of the rings that you feel like you could potentially see this season yeah, like I said, I think seeing Sauron show up in his uh, Amatar, I, I'm probably getting that name wrong, something like that. Sauron in, in his more deceptive, fair form, and seeing him try and get in with the elves, and eventually he will get in with Cel- uh, uh, Celebrimbor. I wonder how far we take that. This is a series that Amazon made a five-season commitment when they agreed, got these rights on the Tolkien estate. Um, I believe season two is basically filmed already, so... They have a full season arc. This is surely going to build up through the culmination of the Second Age, where we see that last alliance of elves and men, where Sauron is defeated, but Isildur doesn't throw the ring in Mount Doom. You know the rest. We're going to build up to that, and I'm curious, like how much of like that like ending battle really is, because truly, like this conflict in the lore is like long stretches of time, right? Because of course, the the elves can be at war forever because they're not going to fucking get sick and die they're just you know right. you kill them on the battlefield one thing but the elves, the elves are there elves can fight forever they can they can never they don't have to stop their siege or anything so <laughs> i'm curious like how long it'll take us to kind of progress to that open conflict with sauron so i think this season we're probably just going to build to seeing sauron in his deceptive form before he's openly acknowledging uh, who he is and yeah i mean are they are they going to for, forge the rings i'm not necessarily sure uh, uh how, how quickly get to that but i'm definitely looking forward to that there's just a lot of famous figures from the lore that we will see over time. We've already seen a good amount of them. Um, I'm curious to see if we see a figure like Glorfindel, who's a very famous elf who was actually in the Lord of the Rings books, but they took him out in the movies and replaced his role with Arwen in uh, the Fellowship, just for kind of plot convenience, really. It kind of made sense to cut his character and combine him with Arwen. He has a lot of exploits during this time. It would kind of be cool to like see the Glorfindel character almost like redeemed in the live action sense. Cause he, they didn't really get to use him in the movies. Mm-hmm. So that's something I just kind of been selfishly thinking about, but yeah, um, I, I guess it, it'll be interesting to see how far um, Elrond uh, gets, 
an Elrond and Celebrimbor board get with the rings this season. That's probably the number one thing. And also just more abstractly, I'm curious to see if the uh, Blue Wizard figures come into play on this show. People probably know Gandalf, Saruman, and then you see Radagast in the Hobbit movies as well. Those are the only wizards in Lord of the Rings, the whole story, that have any like identifying names or histories at all. But there were these other two blue wizards that we basically know nothing about. So in that sense, I wonder if the show is allowed to introduce these figures because they basically have no nothing to really follow. They can kind of introduce a wizard figure as they need to. I'm curious to see if they do that. Probably not this season, but something to think about. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to watching it all. It wraps up in uh, about five weeks, six weeks. So uh, stay tuned. Let us know your thoughts. Drop them below. We're going to be switching gears here now to music where Young Blood dropped his third studio album, Young Blood. And uh, we talked about Young Blood back in 2020 when he dropped Weird. And I, from what I recall from our review, Dave, was like, there's some interesting stuff here, but for the most part, it felt a little it felt a little flat for us. Would you say that that, that is correct? Yeah, I agree. I think Young Blood, to his credit, did kind of predate this more mainstream rock wave we're seeing in pop music he was ahead of this but it also didn't seem like he had a clear uh musical identity on weird weird is an album that isn't actually as weird as you would expect <laughs> given the title that was kind of my lasting feeling but he's always been someone that has at least intrigued me a little bit because i think he just he does have a uh, noticeable voice as a person he does kind of uh, look unique as well like there's just something about him that makes him feel like an artist i guess i don't know and i will admit i do enjoy a song machine Gun kelly i think i'm okay i think that one's pretty good one of the better rock songs mgk's made honestly but i'm still been kind of waiting for like the what's next for young blood after that song parents from his first record i've still been waiting for like like what is next and now he's in in, in a musical landscape where using rock music overtly in your mainstream pop music is not is not only accepted but it's common you know he has willow smith on this record she's doing that the best of almost the best out of anyone these days right so i was just kind of curious to hear well what is what is another young blood album sound like now because we're just in a different time did you feel like young blood this his newest album did anything to change your opinion of him that's a great question i'm not sure Honestly, I think there's a bit more personal lyrics Mm -hmm. on this, but I still think sonically, he's still a bit all over the place for me. Like there were a few moments where I was like, "Hmm, we're we're getting a little '80s here." I thought Mm -hmm. you were you were probably above this as someone who predated the uh, the '80s wave we hear in pop every single week. Guess not. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, I I think I think this one's all right. I think this will probably be pretty well received by his fans, honestly. Yeah, I think I think for his fans, this will be uh, very well received. And, you know, he's he's really in his feelings a lot in this, which I, I'm totally like, OK, for if, if that's what he wants to write about, if that's how he wants to go about making these songs. It's fine. I think my biggest like critique is a lot of these songs, especially when it comes to like the beat um, the and the, the percussion on it, just really felt very generic and kind of like down the middle, like the first two songs, The Funeral and Tissues. 
outside of the the buildup around the chorus those songs could have just been like part one part two almost um and, and the drums on that are like the most basic like boom bap like you know a beat that you could ever really think of for a rock song that being said i thought the songs were really kind of catchy and fun i i think i preferred tissues a bit more it gave me more of like a, a smith type feel to it and mm. i think that's that 80s vibe you're talking about um but I prefer that to kind of what we get in the back half of this album, where it gets a lot more toned down, a little bit more soft, um, like in his feelings, uh, you know, songs like um, don't feel like <laughs> like feeling sad today and things like that. Just really lost my interest by the, the second half. I thought the first half was a little bit more palatable mm. for me. Did you have that same experience or? Yeah, I think so. I thought Funeral, the chorus is. It was a bit catchy. No, nobody came. What a shame, shame, shame. I was like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm rocking yeah. with it here. I think Memories, though, is really fun because I think Willow is a really nice contrast to him. Yeah. It's kind of funny, too, because like she, she definitely has more bite for this kind of sound that Youngblood does, too, which is, like, I think there's always been, like, a, a bit of, like, schadenfreude about Youngblood and, like, how genuine he is uh, with this kind of stuff. And it it is kind of hilarious to hear someone like Willow Smith, who didn't used to make rock music either, but come in and almost sound even more convincing at this sound than he does. You know, he he really, like you said, really seems to be into the sad boy stuff on this, which is not, I think, out of, out of character for him from his past work necessarily. Um, but that being said, I think it really kind of depends on the uh, the production f- for me, like you said. Um, like don't go, don't go, and don't feel like feeling sad today. Back to back, I just thought the tempo on those ones were pretty solid, but like lyrically, I was just not really into it. Um, sex, not violence, though. Did you figure out what that sample or interpolation was? Because that is like really similar to like I saw some people thinking it was like Pat Benatar or something. I wasn't really sure what that was, but it, you you know when you hear it, kind of thing. You know what I think it is actually, and you're gonna laugh. I think it's um, One Direction. Just how just how fast the night changes. Uh, It's like, isn't it crazy? Just how fast the night changes. Fucking so it's Bowie is what it is. Yeah, probably. Also a TikTok, (laughs) a TikTok fucking standout right there. So I don't blame him for going for it. I just want to clean one thing up. Uh, The song I was thinking about in the back half that was toned down was "Die for Tonight," not uh, "Don't Feel Like Feeling Sad Today." That one's just more stripped back, kind of like "I Cry Too." Um, Those were the two that were like slower tempo uh tempo that i didn't really enjoy yeah you know he he definitely is in his feelings um i agree with you on willow i think willow was like a shot of adrenaline to this and and the the beginning of the album is pretty uh pretty electric to begin with and it starts to kind of vary through from there i just don't i just don't know if i maybe i'm not getting it maybe i'm not the right audience for it i think probably um like I would guess like teenagers into like young adulthood would really vibe with this more. I think as people who are a little bit out of that, like that stage of our life, it's probably not as uh, easy to relate to these lyrics and say, yeah, well, like I said, like in terms of like honing in on the sound, it was just kind of strange to me because we had just heard his feature on the Demi Lovato album on (laughs) freak where he was like way more edgier and like harder on that than he is on any of his own songs. Mm hmm. I mean, yeah, clearly this is this what he was feeling these these days, but that's okay, I guess. Looking forward to the Willow album coming out in two weeks. I'm very I'm very excited for the Willow album. Caught a vibe. Yeah, so check out our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist where we'll be putting 
maybe a young blood song on there. You know, Dave, you mentioned Willow, and when we were listening through the now uh, the nostalgia, the Spotify Billions Club playlist that they made. I was kind of expecting to hear a Willow song on there, especially with all of her TikTok fame recently. I thought one of them might sneak on there. She did not. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of artists that we do like on this. And we wanted to talk about this because there are now almost 300, 292 to be exact, artists or songs on the um, Billions Club playlist on Spotify, even more on YouTube. And it's it's kind of this mark of like, I don't even know. Like, what is a song getting a billion plays to you really mean? Yeah, I think that's really the the question too. Before like you make any kind of ranking list of what are the best songs with billion streams, what are the worst songs with a billion streams, you have to really think what does that mean. And you mentioned YouTube has more songs. There are songs with a billion on YouTube that don't have a billion on Spotify. I think just for convenience, we just stuck to Spotify for this. But I think. It's really important, I think, for people to have the proper context with this. And there's a heavy recency bias to having a billion streams. That is quite obvious, just the way music is consumed with playlists and passive listening, but also just the streaming ecosystem we are in has only really existed for the last five plus years. So the music that came out in that time is the music that's going to get consumed. Also, more people have Spotify today than they had last year and the year before that and the year before that. So it is, I want to say, easier to get a billion streams, but you can do it, I think, in a faster manner. That much is clear. People are doing this quicker and quicker. So I think you kind of have to really analyze each individual song that has a lot of streams to determine why it has that, whether the song is genuinely popular or it's just kind of a mainstream artist song that came out and is also popular. Like, obviously, these songs are all popular, but how they got to be popular is kind of an open question. And I think it's really interesting to see older songs that predate streaming that do have a billion streams and think, oh, I wonder why that that song is so big on this platform. Because Mm -hmm. you know there are millions of people that listen to these older songs not on Spotify, for example. You know, And I think it's very important to remember that the most popular songs of all time are not the most streamed songs on Spotify. Yes. And it's, um, I, when I was listening through today, I think the thing that stood out to me was the song is either a legitimately great song. It's either a legitimately catchy song or it's from an artist that is just so beloved by their fan base that the numbers get pushed upwards. And, um, there, there might be a few that fall, you know, out of there that just like right, right place, right time, maybe some that were from a uh, TV show or movie that really propelled it forward. I think one that stood out to me in listening through the Spotify playlist was Sting's I'll Be Watching You, you know, especially, you know, that I didn't expect that to be Sting's highest song. I thought it would be a song from the police um, on there. But you know the the background for it on your on your phone is Stranger Things because it's from the you know the finale and so it's like oh right. you know this song probably was somewhere in like the three four hundred range and then this comes this is in Stranger Things and now it's propelled over a billion so um, I was definitely interested interested by why a song might be on there why it wasn't and I guess as we go into our list we're gonna do our top five best songs that are in the billions club on spotify and the worst 
five songs in the billions club on Spotify and our opinions. How are you doing this list? What, what's your criteria? Yeah, that's a good question. I just wanted to make an interesting list. Songs I like songs. I don't like, um, because there's not, it's not like there's a complete meritocracy for getting on the billions club. I feel like we didn't have to apply that to making our lists either. So, yeah. you know, it, like like all list making, it's uh, many factors, many variables here. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, definitely interesting just to analyze and and reflect on what are the songs that are getting streamed the most, are on the most playlists, et cetera, all the factors that we've said so far. Um, it It is a bit eye-opening sometimes to see what is actually being consumed in this manner. Absolutely. For me, when I was going through this list, uh, um, I I just kept like picking the songs as I was listening through that really stood out to me um, for whatever reason. And then I kind of went back and thought like, what does this song mean to music, I guess? And and what does this mean to like the culture in in a way? Um, And that's kind of how I went about picking the top five best for the, the, bottom five worst um it was more what what was it that made this song get on the list and does it really deserve to be in, in the realm with these other songs in my opinion and we'll right. we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second um but let's start with the top five do you want to run through your top five then i'll do mine or do you want to go back and forth uh we can go back and forth all right look, give me your number five then uh yes yes getting my list here okay my number five is a song that actually made my top 10 songs of the 2010s felt like i kind of needed to pick pick this that'd be Redbone by childish gambino aka donald glover from gosh that was 2016 was it so. awaken my love right before that album came out and there's actually two songs that made my uh top 10 songs of the 2010s that are on the billions club the other one I didn't pick, but that's uh, Lil Uzi vs. Exo Tour Life is also there. But uh, Redbone, you know, I think it's, to me, it's the best song Josh Gambino has ever made. It's the best song that, or I think it was a really important song for Donna Glover's career where he kind of showed that he was kind of above and beyond the kind of struggle bar nature that had accompanied a lot of his hip-hop career to that point. And he had a very successful rap career, uh, especially on the internet at that point but by making this kind of like throwback soul song um which of course preceded this album that was uh, of course filled with that it it really kind of i think put him as an artist into a a new stratosphere definitely made him a lot more interesting to me and it's also i think a song that's had a nice kind of cultural um life of course a really noticeable drop in the beginning of get out famously Mm -hmm. um and yeah i think it's just a song that is a banger but it's kind of like one of those atypical bangers because it's just kind of like a throwback like soul song yeah it it's probably the song that's lasted the test of time most from that album although i do enjoy quite a few songs from that album and when i was listening through a clear standout i was like oh this is great that not only does donald glover obviously i think have a lot of success in a lot of realms but the fact that he has one of these is just like another like feather in his cap so to speak so i was happy to see that for him my number five which I've been going back and forth on. So actually I just changed up my list right before we started recording is dynamite from BTS. Oh God. Absolute wow. 
absolute banger of of a k-pop song and it's one of those songs that every time it comes on i just have to listen through the whole way mm. and i i think for to pick the k-pop song in, in english That's right exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know you, there's only so many k-pop songs on this list i would say i think yeah. this might be the M- more on youtube for sure more. like blackpink has multiple billions on youtube and none of those songs actually have a billion spotify for example exactly and and i expect that you know, if we did this in five years, this is going to change. Um, but I, I think Dynamite is just an absolute dynamite song for, you know, lack of mm-hmm. a better way to say it. But it, it really, I think, embodies the its placement on this list. It falls at like number, I think it's 85 overall on the, the Spotify most played songs. Mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> 1.463 billion. It just... It just shows like what a force BTS and K-pop are. You know, there, there's songs on here that are more recent that are higher up, um, that obviously have more streams. But BTS for this group that is, you know, the Backstreet Boys, In Sync, whatever you want to say, you know, whichever comparison you want to make, uh, for today's culture, um, they really have the hits and. Honestly, like if Butter was on this, I probably would have gone back and forth between them of which one I wanted to choose because that's another <laughs> absolute banger. And I just I, I felt like we needed to represent K-pop in some way on here, even though it is in English, still an amazing song. And I, whenever I, I hear it now, I always think about their performance at the Grammys last year. Yeah. Absolutely stunning, uh, you know, moving, uh, like actually moving the camera with them performance. It was really great. So Dynamite clearly uh, uh deserves to be on these top fives in my opinion and i think um for the song i left off which was oasis's wonderwall um i was going back and forth between them um i'm going to be talking about some other songs that kind of fall in the same vein so i wanted to vary it up just a little bit Roger. um dave give me your number 4 yeah so my number 4 is i feel like a super basic pick earth wind and fire september top tier wedding song most popular earth wind and fire song catchy as hell but it's also really awesome what can you say i don't know i feel like people know <laughs> people know about it and it, it is cool to see that a song uh that old is uh you know over a billion but i feel like it's a song that's kind of transcended generations at this point and is popular with everyone basically mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's an undeniable song you said top tier wedding song it might be the best wedding song. I think we could maybe do a list about that in the in the near future. But mm. yeah, just um, absolutely incredible. Uh, one of the grooviest songs ever made and deserves to be on any top five list. I, I excluded it because I knew you were going to have it, but it would have easily made my top five if you didn't. So glad it's on there. My number four, I think undeniable in a different way, is All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Because, man, it is the Christmas song. Like, literally, November hits, and you just start hearing it. And it is almost synonymous with Christmas music at this point. And the fact that this is the only holiday song that falls on this list just speaks to how much of a banger this song is. And the thing about it is, like, obviously, it gets the bump around Christmas and, you know, all the holiday parties and people listening to it while they're rapping or decorating. But if you even took Christmases out and then you just kind of like filled it in with like for my birthday, obviously it doesn't it's not as catchy, but like just it's a great pop song. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a awesome song in general. So uh, 
easily easily made my top uh five and it was like one of the clear like stop me in my track moments when i was listening to this because i didn't even think about a christmas song falling into the the billions yeah club and i was like oh yeah this makes so much sense right well it's actually kind of funny too if you can go on wikipedia there's a list uh which would be the most streamed songs in a single day and number two on that list is all i want for christmas is you christmas eve 2021 17.4 million in one day about 2.5 million behind easy on me when that came out <laughs> last year i would not be shocked if all i want for christmas is you sets that record again this coming Christmas Eve, because again, more people will have Spotify now than they did that time. Um, and if you look at this list too, number four is Last Christmas by Wham, Christmas Eve 2020. Number eight, Christmas Eve 2020 is Santa Tell Me by Ariana Grande. Number nine, Rock Around the Christmas Tree, Brenda Lee, Christmas Eve last year. Number 10, Jingle Bell Rock, Christmas Eve last year. <laughs> you can keep going. It is actually, I think, kind of funny to see Christmas dominate the single day records yeah but makes complete sense and i think what, what what what's really i think kind of almost under underrated now about all i want for christmas is you is that it's an original christmas song not a cover an original mm-hmm. christmas song that ascended right into the canon when it came yes. out you know 30 years ago almost like christmas songs have always been covers and i guess ariana deserves a little credit as well for santa tell me kind of doing the same thing to a lesser degree but like it's hard to make a new, brand new original Christmas song hit in that manner. I think big part of that's, of course, Mariah's vocal strength, things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, I think it's completely justified. Like, I don't get tired of it. No, me neither. And every time it comes on at like a Christmas party, it just brings the house down. Everybody knows the words. Everybody loves it. It's an undeniable song. All right, Dave, number, number, number three for you. Yeah, number three for me is uh, it's the most popular rock band of the 21st century perhaps uh, un- under under remarked upon but that'd be lincoln parks in the end chester uh, yeah uh, in the end of course from their debut album hybrid theory their best record and this and i believe numb as well for meteora both are over a billion i think in the end is a really good example of why lincoln park was so popular starting in the early tw- uh, 2000s because it's a great it's a great example of the two vocal stylings of that band. Chester Bennington's uh anguished raw emotional singing and then Mike Shinoda's uh rap rock uh rapping. It's a good great great example of both, but also another a great showcase for uh the appeal of Chester Bennington's vocals too. And you know, I think Lincoln Park is a band that for me I think creatively really got away from this after you know from like 2007 on basically and was not an interesting band to me from that point forward, but they were a really successful band throughout the, their existence until Chester passed. Obviously, they they were a stadium band uh, worldwide. They are the best-selling band since the year two thousand. It's kind of crazy to think about that way because I feel like the critics were out on the band long ago, but they've really stood the test of time. I think that those early first two records, partic- particularly Hybrid Theory, particularly your song in the end, I think really. Uh, kind of capture like a different time right because we don't we don't we, we don't hear rock music that's anything like early lincoln park these days but it is kind of cool to see that that early lincoln park that was so revered is still as popular now as it was obviously back in the day pre-streaming a gr- great pick would not have been my lincoln park pick i probably i was going to pick numb 
actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's kind of, you know, whatever your taste is for them, yeah. but you can't really go wrong with either. They're both undeniable. It's honestly not my favorite song of theirs. I would, I would have loved to pick One Step Closer, but that's at like mm. 400 million. So yeah. alas, here we are. Uh, only 600 million more spins and then we can we can talk about it <laughs> on here. Um, Dave, do you remember in 2003 buying Elephant, the newest album from the White Stripes and hitting play? Can't say I do. Uh, well, I, I I very clearly <laughs> remember this in my mind because I had had my CD player, I had my over the head headphones, mm-hmm. and uh, was that a Walkman or do you have a knockoff of some kind? Uh, you know, I I don't even remember. I, all I know it was silver and very old looking. <laughs> I think it was actually passed down to me from probably my siblings at that point, so it wasn't it wasn't anything special. Um, but man, the moment that Seven Nation Army came on, I just fucking I hit hit open on the CD player. I hit skip to go back and I replayed it because Seven Nation Army, my number three, is an absolutely undeniable rock classic and a song that is honestly just accepted into the zeitgeist all around the world at this point. And it's it's one of the most recognizable rock songs of the last twenty five years. Um, it's it's incredible to hear it chanted by crowds at stadiums it's incredible how you can just hear that beginning of the dum 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 and everybody just immediately is into it and jack white um we talked about him a lot in the podcast this year and over the course of our time doing this um i i think he would probably look at seven nation army and say yeah it's it's one of the more popular songs I've made, probably not one of the his best songs. It's fairly simple for him, other than obviously his incredible solo on it. But to take his talent and basically boil it down to this simplicity and have it be a song that is just an earworm and just a song that has become so beloved, it's incredible, honestly. So Seven Nation Army, my number three. Um, what's your number two? And it's a great pick, and there's a lot of, uh, I think, picks from like that point forward that are kind of like a similar vibe that you can make. But I think that's that was one that really stood out to me as kind of an obvious contender. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two for me is, I believe, the only Kanye West song on Billions Club. Yeah. Which should be Stronger. Graduation. People know it. It's uh, one of the best Kanye songs for sure, but also one of the most popular. And... Um, think why it's most popular obviously the uh the daft punk sample very obvious very familiar at this point um but it also is coming from one of if not the most populist kanye albums when you really think down on it we did our kanye album rankings last year graduation was neither of our number ones but it's probably most people's top three you know like Mm -hmm. and i think a big part of that is stronger and flashing lights. So it's a really catchy song, really up tempo song. Connie's awesome on it, and then the da- the Daft Punk sample is just like ingenious, honestly. Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing song. Played it at my wedding. We got to pick one Kanye song we agreed, and that was the one we chose. So um, you know, it's it deserves to be on the list. I was surprised there weren't more Kanye songs. If there was another one that you thought would have made the Billions Club, which one would it have been? So I'm just looking at it now. Uh, Paris is at 9.51, so that'll get there. Yep. But, yeah. I mean, I guess Gold Digger, probably a censored yeah. version, I would have thought. 
was a contender for this, but uh, you know, the more you think about it, you know, it's not like Kanye has a slew of number ones or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not he's never been Drake, so yeah. I get I, you know maybe maybe power stand, stands out. Power I'm just was to... what I was thinking of. Yeah, but yeah, Heart, that... heartless perhaps. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's heartless when... at six hundred, pretty far off. When you talk about Kanye, it's about the. Uh the totality of the work a lot of time rather than it is the the singles really popping off like you said so great choice um my number two we're going back in time now so we started with 2020 we moved into i guess the 90s with mariah we then jumped into the 2000s and we're back into the 90s the early 90s 1991 nirvana's nevermind comes out it smells like teen spirit just becomes the anthem of the grunge phase of the of rock in the 90s and has maybe one of the most recognizable guitar licks of all time uh one of the most recognizable openings uh really i think established um the nirvana but especially cobain as just this like visionary in this space his vocals are so iconic in this you know and you think about the like refrain when the the chorus is breaking down and just the dun, 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 like it, there's so many moments to it and then you get this incredible incredible solo from Kobe in the second half and it's like it, it was the first song that came on when I hit uh shuffle on the playlist and I honestly just like I was on a run and I was like losing my shit. It was incredible. Um, smells like Teen Spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. Honestly, not my favorite Nirvana song, but man, if you if you don't like Smells Like Teen Spirit, you just like don't appreciate good music, in my opinion. So it's a good <laughs> good litmus good litmus test, in my opinion. Dave, what do you think about that as number two on my list? Yeah, I think that's an uh, that's a excellent pick. Perhaps a bit surprising to me that this would be all the way up in a billion. Honestly, because yeah. Nirvana obviously far predates the internet giving you music in any fashion so uh i guess it really speaks to nirvana's ongoing influence but also i think that's a song that has kind of gotten bigger than nirvana itself like it's mm-hmm. just in terms of like it's a bit more mainstream than you, yeah. you you would perhaps associate with their other big hits yeah that and lithium are the two that really stand out to me as like moving past nirvana's as a band and more just as accepted into the culture but we're down to our number ones what do you got Yes, my number one, uh, I picked a late 70s song already with Earth, Wind, and Fire, September, and I'm doing it again with 1978's Don't Stop Me Now, Queen, my favorite Queen song. I was very happy to see this has a billion streams. I think Bohemian Rhapsody, the film with Rami Malek, has a lot to do with this, but Queen is gigantic on streaming, and Queen is the biggest legacy band on streaming, like, easily. You know, mm-hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody is almost at 2 billion streams. Like, song is as big as it's ever been uh, as far as a life post post the actual time of Queen, you know? And I think for me, Don't Stop Me Now has always been my favorite Queen song ever since, gosh, I don't know when I first heard the band. I must have been in, like, God, early teenage years for sure. And I just, mm-hmm. I remember just running this MP3 back constantly. <laughs> and because it just, it's just so catchy. So up tempo, so fun, and it's an awesome Freddie performance. Like so many of their hits, obviously, but there's yep. a lot of a lot of contenders because there are many songs that Queen has over a billion now. Under Pressure, another one bites the dust. Rhapsody. I think Bohemian Rhapsody has a billion streams twice. 
because there's the initial remaster of 2011, and then they put that on the Bohemian Rhapsody soundtrack. So there's like two entries for yeah. it, and I think both of those have a billion, <laughs> as far Jeez. as I know. We Will Rock You is over 900. That'll get there, of course. Queen, Queen I think, is kind of transcendent above whatever uh, critical opinion people had of, had of the band who were there at the time, because so many of these songs are just so big in the culture, right? We Will Rock You, a staple of every sporting event till the end of time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Queen is probably the like the band from the past, you know, 40, 50 years that has been able to reassert themselves into modern culture. And, and just I think it speaks to the strength of their singles. You know, you, you look back and those records maybe aren't in, in full form, something that you want to talk about. But yeah, the singles are just all there. It's so funny because I actually I think I had another one, another one bites the dust and under pressure as the two I would have picked. Um, I, I love that Bowie um guest uh backup vocals on under pressure and inverse actually but um yeah great pick and don't stop me now another fun wedding song but just a great song in general my number one oh, i just want to, one last note too on queen you would think are queen actually the most popular band from the past not necessarily but we must remember and you'd have no way of knowing this if you didn't don't remember this or didn't look it up the beatles did not join Spotify true until like 2016. So they yeah. are just behind the ball with getting the streams. That being said, here comes the sun is a project 900 over time. I'm sure more Beatles songs will hit a billion, but that's a big reason why they actually have zero songs with a billion stream at this time. They just weren't in the game, just weren't <laughs> as, in the game. as long as others. So it's a big factor in being available to be streamed, obviously. And that's largely not a thing anymore, but it was a thing not too long ago where, Bands were not on digital streaming platforms. Take Zeppelin yeah. had a similar thing with iTunes back in the day. Rolling Stones are not even really that close. Uh, Painted Black is seven sixty million, so they got right. a ways to go. Um, my number one, though, just switching gears quick, is a, is someone from around this time, and that's Fleetwood Mac. And mm -hmm. when Rumors dropped in nineteen seventy seven, uh, they dropped the single "Dreams" as their second single. And man, "Dreams" is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's probably one of the most lauded and appreciated songs from one of the most lauded and appreciated albums of all time. There's not really a lot to say about Dreams other than like it's Fleetwood Mac just firing on all cylinders. You got Stevie Nicks with her like sultry tones. You have awesome um, synchronization of, of, of the instruments and the vocals all at, at and swelling around the chorus and man just these lyrics that are it's kind of like hard to say like oh you know the olden times were better because I, I think that so many aspects of um culture and about music and movies and everything just increasingly is better now than it was then and that might be my own biases but like i I don't think they write vocals like they used to. And Dreams is what they, they don't write you know lyrics like they, they used to. I mean, and Dreams is like the epitome of that, where like the meaning of it all and, and just like the metaphor around it all. is just something you don't really hear a lot today. So uh, Dreams is just in general is one of the best songs of all time, in my opinion. So it had to and, be my number one. And of course, this song had a huge comeback in 2020 when it exploded on TikTok. Oh, right. With the skateboarding guy. Yeah. I totally forgot about that with the cranberry juice. Oh, yeah. Wow. And that's that's a really pandemic days. But that, that that's obviously like when, you know, the Internet's at its best, when it brings a classic that 
is already adored two new people who then discover <laughs> it and find out they too adore that song as well you know? right exactly well, that, like, that wraps we're seeing, up. We're our... seeing this right now with Kate Bush, who's not at a billion yet. It's kind <laughs> of the same thing. We're like, uh, what is old can become new again. There's a lot of scholarship on this right now of how this is happening with the internet, and and older music is being streamed just as much as newer music for honestly the first time in the streaming landscape. So we'll probably slowly see more old cl- school classics approach these thresholds as well so something mm-hmm. to keep an eye on dave that wraps up our top fives but are there any songs you just want to shout out real quick yeah so apart from the ones we've both talked about there were some other i think you know solid honorable mentions i think mr Brightside's an obvious one yeah acdc had two of my favorite songs on there back in black highway to hell mm-hmm. living on a prayer bon jovi uh michael jackson billy billy jean um the best Eminem songs, early stuff, actually, are the ones that have a billion, which was, I think, warmed my heart because I had not been a fan for a long time. But Real Slim Shady, Without Me, Till I Collapse were all up there. Um, two songs that I wish had a billion, I would have picked them, but are both like 800 plus would be Gaga's Bad Romance and Biggie's Hypnotize. Love those. Yeah. Um, J. Cole, surprisingly, has over a billion for No Role Models, which is my favorite Cole song. That was that was cool. I, I didn't quite expect him to be that high. Um, and then I think Drake, kind of obviously, One Dance and God's Plan are the top ones for him. But yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to look at this playlist because there's a lot of like the like playlist core stuff that uh, almost is like designed or now fits in that mold of it. This was designed to be an earworm, to mm-hmm. be listen to all the time which quite conveniently means it's going to be streamed over and over again so a lot of stuff kind of comes in mind when you look at that list they're very similar thoughts about the song right like a sweet but psycho ava max sorry yeah. justin bieber the middle zed and Marin Morris, songs like that like it makes complete sense why those have a billion plus streams right because those are just songs that people just keep hitting play on because they there's something about them that makes people want to revisit them do that that overwhelming catchiness totally um i just want to shout out a couple songs that weren't mentioned billy jean michael jackson uh was one that was in contention for me it was nice to see arctic monkeys and uh team and Paula each get a song on there with uh uh do i want to know and um the less i know the better respectively uh bruno mars a couple songs but i really love locked out of heaven just a absolute banger from our guy and yeah, there are a couple of EDM songs um, stood out, Titanium and Lean On from Geta and Major Lazer, and then also uh, Cardi B WAP was one that stood out to me as well. <laughs> yeah. like, man, that song was really everywhere. Great great song. Kind of funny that the only Ellen John song with a billion streams yeah. would be Cold Heart, Pinot Remix, which is just the redoing of Rocket Man, but none of his actual old school hits. <laughs> I actually have a billion, just the, the redux that is Cold Heart. Yeah unfortunately but yeah that's our top five give us what your top five would be there's a lot to choose from these lists can look very different uh depending on what your taste is so let us know um but dave let's let's shift gears and talk about the five worst songs in our opinion on the spotify billions club and we talked about why we would pick the songs we picked to be in our top five but what made a song in your bottom five and listening through because obviously all these songs in some way are you know like 
okay songs. Like they're they're beloved if they've gotten this many streams. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think that's important to note too. All of these songs are popular. All of these songs are well liked by a large swath of people. Right. So when you establish that, then you have to determine, okay, what songs do I actually think are bad? I like tons of bad songs. I think it's important to be able to criticize something that you enjoy. And that's what I'm doing for these. Now, these are songs I do not enjoy, but many people do. And that's totally fine. Like I said, I like bad stuff. We all do. It's okay. But there there, there are some stinkers on the Spotify Billions Club. There are songs with a billion plus streams on Spotify that suck. And that's just the way it goes. That's how music has always been. And now it's just very easy to uh, determine this when you have a conveniently created playlist like the Billions Club by Spotify. I think for me, you you were kind of just talking about it, the idea of like creating an earworm. And I think for me, it's the songs that were like crafted specifically to just be an earworm um, that I found myself rejecting more. I also found myself just kind of gravitating towards artists. And now that I'm, it's funny, I'm looking this over. I think all the artists I picked are, are men, uh, funny enough, um, that I just really found to be either like, kind of like weak <laughs> yeah, or I found to be kind of just soft or like insincere maybe. Um, but I, I definitely found myself going through and almost being like, Ugh, and like skipping past like once I hear it. And, you know, everybody has those songs that they hear. They're just like, Ugh. but, you know, when those songs become the earworms that some of these did, it's not so fun. Uh, I went second last time, so I'll start off with mine. My number five is from our guy, Sean Mendez. There's nothing holding me back. Oh, man. I just do not like this song. And, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of Shawn Mendes songs on this playlist. Yeah. But this was Senorita. probably. The, yeah. This is probably the one that, like, I immediately just, like, skipped. I think I got, like, three notes in and wow. I, like, verified the song. And I was like, eh, I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me. Um, Interesting. Our guy Mendes, just not, 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 not in my favorite. But, yeah, you know. I'll be honest. Like, that's, that's, like, one of my favorite Shawn Mendes songs, relatively <laughs> speaking. Dave, uh, there's other songs you. I dislike way more. <laughs> this might surprise you, but uh, I don't really listen to Shawn Mendes all that much. So maybe this is just the embodiment right. of my dislike for him. I don't know. His stands are going to give you stitches soon. Careful. <laughs> I, I actually don't mind stitches. So <laughs> if that was on here, I, I definitely wouldn't have put it on my bottom five. But yeah, there's nothing holding me back. It's my number one, my number five on uh-huh. the uh, Billions Club Worst. What's your number five? Yeah, we'll go with... Uh... I don't really rank these too well. We'll go with uh, Little Mosey's Blueberry Fago. I, I knew is, you were going to pick this one. Yeah, this is this is honestly one of the most egregious like TikTok hits on here. TikTok <laughs> doesn't necessarily guarantee you a billion streams or even 500 million streams. It takes a lot more than that. But for whatever reason, Blueberry Fago exploded on TikTok in, I want to say, like mid-2020 and just really continued on. It's far from his best song, but, but Little Mosey himself is a pretty uninspiring rapper. Doesn't have good lyrics. Doesn't even rap that well. He's just made a few melodic, catchy songs. I don't find this one that catchy. I don't understand why so many people do. Because it's one thing to enjoy the TikTok trend. But like you still have to actively want to listen to the song normally, too. And I just don't understand the appeal of this one at all. Well, I, I saw it come up. I was like, this would be my bottom five, but I know Dave's going to get to this one. So I, I left it off. But yeah, it was also a song. I was like, eh, not not great. Um, you know, kind of sticking in the same vein 
uh, as my last pick. We're staying in the rock realm for, I think, all of these in a sense. Uh, Thunder by Imagine Dragons, my number four. Man, um, you talk about just like making the most generic, basic pop rock song with like the most, like the least inspired lyrics and just having that song. Hardly radioactive. (laughs) Well, and then just having that song be on every single commercial and played at all these like sporting events it's like ooh, this is really like a a bad sign for the rock uh genre that this was like the biggest rock song of like the 2010s in a way probably like numbers wise yeah i mean imagine dragons is perhaps the biggest rock band right now they they do arenas every time they tour like and they, they have numerous songs on this playlist many contenders i think an Imagine Dragon song had to be on one of our lists just because I, I, I think they're a largely terrible, terrible group. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, Nickelback, in a lot of ways, I think, has like come back around. But the oh, way that so Nickelback... so much better than Imagine Dragons. Yeah, but the way that they were perceived in like the 2000s yes, was like similar. Nickelback, like, oh, this like wannabe Canadian rock group. And like they make these like terrible like pop songs that are just for the radio. Imagine Dragons like ramped that up tenfold, and I, I think that's kind of how they're viewed by most people, but still enjoyed by a lot of people, and that's why they're on this list. So good for them. Get keep cashing those checks, boys. What's your number four, Dave? Yeah, number four for me would be Maps by Maroon Five. Man, I have Maroon Five coming up next. Yeah, what, what's yours? Let's do it now. Uh, what Lovers Do by Maroon Five. So there are several Maroon 5 songs <laughs> yes. on Billions Club, and the majority of them are newer Maroon 5 songs. After like 2007, Maroon 5 has not contributed anything interesting with their music, which is actually quite disappointing because songs about Jane is pretty great. And great album. they're just a completely unrecognizable, terrible group. Now it's really just a vehicle for Adam Levine, and Adam Levine is checked out long ago. Which, you know, good for him. That guy's rich as hell, just kind of doing his thing because people are still running up his songs. But God, I think these songs have sucked for, for a while now. And yeah, I just picked maps, but you could have picked a few, a few of them here, such as you did. Yeah, you know, I think the reason I chose What Lovers Do over maps is What Lovers Do is quite literally unrecognizable as a rock song. And I know a lot of Maroon 5 is like just pop straightforward now but they always try to keep something and maps at least has some like guitars and some energy yeah, that's a good point what lovers do is like oh my god and the fact SZA is on this and she stooped down to this for this like obvious just like grab like a uh, notoriety grab is like so so demoralizing to me because i consider her such a better artist than maroon five um yeah it's just like the most basic like kygo bullshit song ever and it's like you barely ever get any kind of energy throughout the song it's very sparse and uh yeah you know it it, when sissa can't even come on and like give you a verse to like make the song somewhat enjoyable it just is total shit to me so that's my number three dave (laughs) uh what's yours uh yeah so you mentioned kaigo i didn't pick kaigo i think he only has one with a billion Mm -hmm which is the uh, Selena song, It Ain't Me, which yeah. I think is probably is one of his better songs. I would probably wouldn't have picked that anyway. But I did pick a other largely maligned EDM Marshmello. group. Not Marshmallow, who I consider, they are, they are in my dishonorable mentions because there are many Marshmallow songs on Billions Club as well. Again, 
take your pick because they're uh, Marshmallow is a very dull, dull artist always has been. But I picked uh, the Chainsmokers, who I think just they're just a tad more famous than Marshmallow, and that's why I wanted to pick them because not that I necessarily. I don't loathe Closer or something just like this. I've just accepted the fact that I find those songs very catchy. But I've never been impressed with their production. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they've are they always just been very basic and boring. And a song like Don't Let Me Down, which is my choice here, has 1.5, almost 1.6 billion streams. And that's a song where the vocals from Daya kind of do all the work, but the beat from the Chainsmokers is so lifeless and, and, and almost non-existent. It's like, it's like two chords. And I just don't get why people like a song like that so much. I get why Closer and something just like this are hits. We've been over that. But like this song, Don't Let Me Down, it's just like, ah, this is kind of like, to me, everything that's been wrong with the Chainsmokers and why they've been kind of cr- critically uh, derided for their entire run is yeah. that they just... There's almost like no no goals with the music they're actually producing. Yeah, it's the most bland pop, like EDM bullshit. And uh, I, I do like Roses. That's a song that I, I'll play back sometimes. But yeah, most of their stuff is just like, why? Why would put yourself through that? There's so much, so many more interesting artists. Uh, even Kygo, who I think uh, has become mostly famous for, uh, I think, in my opinion, remixing older songs and just kind of like, playing off that like i think it's Whitney houston remix of higher love is actually pretty great um i i think he at least like tries stuff and like tries to like liven things up sometimes like chain smokers like you said are pretty like just like aimless and uh, i remember the last time i remember thinking about them was when they got all, all the hate for doing the shows during covid out in montauk mm-hmm. for like the, the super wealthy elites that's just says everything you need to know about them and probably the people who were at that show (laughs) anyways uh i I doubt that they listen to this so i feel safe saying that uh my number two dave uh, someone we've talked about on the podcast quite a bit that's ed sheeran and uh i picked the song perfect from ed sheeran because man i just really hate that song uh if it comes on i skip we had one one artist at our wedding who was just banned from playing any of their songs and that was ed sheeran and we wow. made sure we made our DJ know that he's just not an artist that I uh, really enjoy listening to. And perfect, you know, when you talk about the soft Ed Sheeran songs, not even one of the better soft Ed Sheeran songs, in my opinion. It's super sappy, um, purely going for the like uh, emotional play. And um, I think if you if you want to listen to Ed Sheeran and you really need to get your your ginger fixed, um, go for like shivers. Or like shape of you or something. Don't go for right. perfect. Just so so bad. Yeah. So Ed notably is has the most entries with the billion streams on Spotify. I believe it's like seven or eight. And as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, perfect. Your choice there. The eleventh most streamed song on Spotify. Yep. Two point one five billion. Shape of you, of course, famously number one for now. Three point two. I feel like Blinding Lights is gonna get there soon. But yeah, there's a bunch of other Ed songs on there. I think songs that are a lot more interesting and better, like like Galway Girl, for right. example, or uh, Thinking Out Loud. I think is on there too. Like, I was gonna there, say there are way better songs on this on there. It's just funny that like no matter what song Ed makes, whether it's actually good or it's like super dull, mm-hmm. all of them get consumed rapidly. That's why yeah. he, he that's why he is as big as he is. 
Yeah, he he's Wonderbread. It's not interesting, but everybody listens to it, unfortunately. Um, yeah, you know, if you're gonna go for this like type of Ed song, like you said, Thinking Out Loud would be the the one that I would say transition to. Don't listen mm-hmm. to this. So, um, Dave, we're up to our number ones. Actually, I'm my number two. Oh, you're at number two. Sorry. Yeah. What's your number two? Number two for me, someone who we've uh, denigrated on this podcast before, <laughs> and that would be Pillow Talk by Zane. Zane uh, Mallard, the first One Direction to go solo. Never I, been didn't, as... I didn't feel safe to do this with all the Zane haters out there. Or Zane stands, I guess. They're haters of us. Yeah. No, I, just very simply, I've just never been a fan of Zane's vocals. I think he's rather rather dull, rather aimless with his performance. And he had another song that you could have picked. It's the Sia song off Icarus Falls. But I feel like Pillow Talk, which is the debut single, for me, it's kinda, it kind of captures everything there is about it. Zane in a negative way, which is that it's just often like super, super dull, often a way overproduced, but like the performance itself never does a lot for me. You know, um, the the Taylor yeah, song from Fifty Shades is also up there. I like that song way more than this, you know, for example. I don't um, want to live. Exactly. Forever. Fucking awesome song. Yeah. Sorry, Zane. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't dislike Zane. We just, Oh, but I just don't like the music as well. Yeah, uh, yeah I whatever. yeah that that one stood out to me as one I didn't I skipped pretty quickly too. Um, <laughs> all right, we're on to our number ones, and anyone that listens to our end of year uh, list podcast knows that I, I do this move quite frequently. I have two for this one. <laughs> I just I couldn't I couldn't deli- like I couldn't not give it to both of them. That's true that, negative passion right there, <laughs> and that would be Justin Timberlake for "Can't Stop the Feeling" and "Happy" by Pharrell. Uh, wow, these these nice. two songs are just the epitome of like everything that's wrong with like earworm music. They have no substance to them. They give literally the most annoying energy. They are like the real life embodiment of that everything is awesome song from the Lego movie. And that <laughs> yeah. song is even better than these. Way more palatable. Um, just totally bland, nothingness. Uh, the The worst that pop has to offer is these songs. And they are some of the most beloved songs. I get it. Kids can listen to them. They're very like down the middle, cookie cutter, safe songs. But man, if you like, if you literally are like starting your day. Both soundtrack songs too, right? They are. Yes, I believe they are both soundtrack Spickable songs. Despicable Me and uh, Trolls. Yes. But man, if you are starting your day and you're, and you're not doing this just because you're like, I am like so depressed. I need anything to pick me up. I know these songs are like, designed to try to pick you up if you're just like putting this on you're like man i really love these songs get get yourself help like you can do better yeah you can you like go talk to somebody you know there's there's help out there for this go check out our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist i think there's also they're great picks because pharrell and justin timberlake are so much better than that oh yeah and they've done it before (laughs) especially pharrell very very intriguing celebrated multifaceted artist for such a long time mm-hmm. and justin timberlake his early solo career it has a lot of merit to it obviously and they're popular songs to them too these songs are just very craven uh bland songs really anyone yeah could have written and made way yep. way way beneath them what's your number one dave my number one is hot girl bummer by black bear <laughs> <laughs> i, I can't believe this one like would even be mentioned. I'm so surprised. I can't believe this song is a million streams. <laughs> Black Bear is an artist that has had serious issues with him for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was someone who came up with rock 
then very obviously shifted to hip-hop production because he could get away with it as a white guy. And now he's conveniently shifting back to rock because now it's popular again. But Hot Girl Bummer is perhaps the most cowardly thing he's ever made because he just blatantly ripped off Hot Girl Summer meme from Megan Thee Stallion in 20... was it 19? 1920? And he makes this song, which I just... I just don't get the appeal of it at all. And yeah, when I saw that on there, I was like, wow, that that's a very obvious pick to me. I <laughs> can't, can't ignore it. I'm I'm happy for you that it was so easy. I, I think I honestly did just ignore it because I, I don't even remember <laughs> seeing this on the list. But yeah, that's that's a clear number, number one. I don't blame you for picking that. Give me a, a couple other ones that were in contention for your bottom five. Yeah, so when we mentioned Marshmallow, I think contenders yep. there. There's other Maroon 5 songs contenders there. Um, I'm not a fan of XXN's Tentacion. He's got a few on here. We'll leave it at yeah. that. Um, other Ed songs, as we mentioned. I feel like we covered a good amount of ground here. Um, then I feel like there's the, of course we covered Imagine Dragons and a lot of, a lot to pick from there. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else really stood out to you as like, yes, like you already did Shawn Mendes. To me, Senorita is a song I've never understood. That's number nine all time. That that one that never makes sense made sense to me. Um, um, yeah. yeah for, what else stood out stood out to you? You know, for Negatively. me, it was most. Yeah, I, I so you you mentioned a lot of them. Um, I had a marshmallow song originally in my top five, and then I switched it out. Cake by the Ocean by DNCE is another one yeah. of those like very upbeat, yeah, like pop songs. I just never got the appeal of, and it's just total like bullshit. But Post Malone had a few yep. on here that I was like, really? <laughs> really? I, I don't know. I mean, he, I don't mind like circles, you know, but rock star, like congratulations. Like, I don't know. Really? A billion, billion plays for these. Uh, but Post Malone, another one of those guys who just has so many fans and it's just, right. Uh, yeah. A lot of his songs get up there. So um, people don't want to hear this, but one of my least favorite songs on this playlist watermelon sugar by harry styles mm. well never you liked know, it never liked the writing sign of the times was on there too and i was like yeah really a billion i don't know that didn't, didn't deserve a billion for me but again let us know your thoughts on this because there's so many songs to choose from um so drop a uh, drop your thoughts on uh below or hit us up at nostalgia pod on twitter but dave we're going to wrap up today very familiar place for us talking about the emmys I can't believe the Emmys are coming up so quickly. Um, but there is it the eleventh, eleventh Monday. Jeez! Yeah. Oh, the twelfth! Wow. Okay. Um, You're kind of annoyingly on Monday, not yeah. Sunday. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, we'll be recording next Tuesday, I suppose. But anyways, um, yeah, we already did our predictions. So what we're really going to get into are our predictions for nominations. So what we're going to be getting into yeah. today is our predictions for winners for these categories. Um, going into this, though, Dave, is there any like any like Emmy storylines or things that really sticks yeah. out to you? So we talked about this when we talked about the nominations after they came out. But there's a lot of. Uh, I'll say group think, but like a lot of like over nominating for certain series, namely mm-hmm. HBO shows, The White Lotus and Succession, were nominating the entire cast and just dominating the categories with the show doesn't really serve anyone. And it's kind of like a bit performative to me. Like we don't need everyone in The White Lotus nominated when right. only 
two of these people have a chance to even win. Yep. It's better to spread the love in the TV landscape we exist in where there's so much choice. Mm-hmm. Try and overlook as few people as possible. But this is that kind of the opposite problem. And I think if they kind of change how voting is done where there's a set number of nominees, this probably won't happen nearly as much. Ted Lasso, another one where it's kind of over-nominated. But um, I think, you know, in terms of other storylines, you know, it's just kind of the classic stuff where it's like, will Netflix get a big prize? Stuff like that. Um, HBO is the most nominated series. Will it have the most wins? Things like that. I, I don't know if there's anything that's super, um, super, super new as a narrative here because despite that huge TV let we experienced this past spring, nominations don't actually reflect that, as I just said. So... Uh, you know, for the most part, we were pretty happy with these nominations. Uh, more more good than bad, of course. So, yeah, just just curious to see uh, how many surprises we get because I feel like there are some overwhelming favorites. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the over nominating certain ones, not spreading the love as much as you might want to. Um, I think for me, it's like how many of these. Uh, category and I guess I'm going to say how many of these like types of show categories so comedy drama or limited or anthology series are really going to be dominated by one show right because as you look through the three comedy series Ted Lasso uh, got a ton of nominations especially in the supporting categories in drama series Succession got the most nominations and seems primed to have a big night and then limited or anthology series the White Lotus and Dope Sick are like the two that stand out. The White Lotus, especially in the supporting categories. So it's, you know, it's like, are we really going to see just like these three shows get all the love come next Monday night? I'm hoping not. I can't say I, I feel confident, especially given the way that the nominations went uh, played out. But uh, I do hope we get some surprises. So um, Keenan Thompson is the host. Um, I think it will be a very down the middle uh, award show because of that. Keenan is very safe. And uh, I, I think especially when it comes to like the Emmys host, you never really think about them unless they screw something up. So um, why don't we start with limited or anthology series, Dave? And we're going to do supporting actress, uh, the nominees, Connie Britton for the White Lotus, Jennifer Coolidge for the White Lotus, Alexandria Daddario for the White Lotus, uh, Caitlin Dever for Mayor of Easttown. Uh, Natasha Rothwell for the White Lotus, Sydney Sweeney for the White Lotus, and Mayor Whittingham for Dope Sick. Uh, a lot of White Lotus, five to be exact in that category. Who from the White Lotus is going to win, Dave? Uh, yeah, actually, I think I think they there's a typo on there. Caitlin Deaver was not in Mayor of Easttown; she was in Dope Sick. I think the yeah. the Emmy the Emmy uh, ballot they printed there is wrong. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, well, obviously this is dominated by the White Lotus ladies. And it was kind of obvious after watching the White Lotus who the choice would be here: Jennifer Coolidge, mm-hmm. the scene only the, the biggest scene stealer of those choices. There, a bit disappointing that there's five White Lotus nominees there. Alas, that's what we have. Yeah, I think it's Coolidge pretty easily here. Yeah, I think it. I think it'll probably be Coolidge as well. I mean, Connie Britton, Sydney Sweeney maybe would be like the backup choices here. Do you think there's any chance that because there's so many white lotuses, one of the dope sick girls gets this? I guess that's the only, the, the, the only other thought, right? Is yeah. that going to happen? I, 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 I'm probably betting against it, but 
I guess it's in play. Yeah, I mean, it's hard too because it's not like either one of these two and uh, you know, Mayor Winningham or Caitlin Deaver is um, like a big big name that could just get a lot of right. notoriety. So yeah, I would say it's probably Coolidge is the the safe bet there. Um, let's move on to supporting actor in a limited or anthology series. The nominees are. Murray Bartlett for The White Lotus, Jake Lacey for The White Lotus, Will Poulter for Dope Sick, Seth Rogen for Pam and Tommy, Peter Sarsgaard for Dope Sick, uh, Michael Stol- Stolberg for Dope Sick, and Steve Vaughn for The White Lotus. Dope Sick and The White Lotus each have three. Pam and Tommy, Seth Rogen, uh, <laughs> thanks for coming out. Um, I yep. think this is Murray Bartlett pretty easily. I agree. Again, the, the other scene stealer from The White Lotus cast. Uh, you probably can guess where we're going with limited series winner here. <laughs> but I think these two sporting categories would show if there was more spreading of the wealth and more shows were in the mix here, there would be more opportunity for a surprise. Yep. But I, I don't really think that's that, that's possible when it's only a few shows in the mix. So I think Jake Lacey actually is very deserving given mm-hmm. that kind of off type performance he did there. But Murray Bartlett is by far the showiest performer there. Um, you know, I think Dope Sick though, we didn't we didn't talk about Dope Sick, but kind of surprised me how rapturously received it ended up being here at the Emmys. But yeah, I feel like Dope Sick's just kind of gonna get shut out because HBO uh, is just gonna take it home. They know what to do. Yeah, I think I think the supporting categories will be White Lotus most likely. That I think these um, lead categories are more likely to go to dope sick and let's move on to lead actress in a limited or anthology series for tony colette for the staircase julia gardner for inventing anna lily james for pam and tommy sarah paulson for impeachment american crime story margaret qualley for maid and amanda seyfried from the dropout are the nominees you know looking at this my initial thought is there's no dope sick here there's no white lotus here maybe we're gonna get a little margaret qualley sneaking in here oh, I, I think this could be a good look because i know maid got a lot of love um uh, yeah. we didn't talk about it I, I did see a couple episodes she's she's great in it so I, I would love to see that but you know the two i had highlighted were her and amanda seyfried um i'd love to see amanda seyfried get it for yeah i think amanda seyfried is the best pick here and would be my pick as well uh you know it's kind of cool to look at this because you have HBO, Netflix, Hulu, and FX here. But Amanda Seyfried is Hulu, just like Lily James. And Margaret Qualley is Netflix, just like Julia Garner. I, I, I kind of feel like Netflix would be pushing Julia Garner because that was a more widely watched series, and Julia Garner is a previous Emmy winner for Ozark. Mm-hmm. So Qualley would be really inspired, but I don't know about that one. I think it's going to be ciphered though. This is kind of like a case of like tap for this award right away with yeah. that amazing, you know, performance and don't have to overthink it, but I guess don't overrule or over, uh, for, uh, underrate Tony. Yeah. Tony Collette with staircase because of the HBO factor. Yeah, ah, man, this is, this one feels like the most wide open to me out of all the, uh, anthology series categories, but, right. Um, yeah, I, I think those are good picks. I, I, I hope Wally pulls it out, though. I'd like to see her get some love. Um, all right, lead actor in a limited or anthology series, Colin Firth for The Staircase, Andrew Garfield, Under the Banner of Heaven, 
Oscar Isaac scenes from marriage, Michael Keaton, dope sick, Himesh Patel, Station Eleven, yeah, baby, and mm-hmm. Sebastian Stan for Pam and Tommy. Uh, I don't think Pam and Tommy's going to get love here. I don't think Station Eleven's going to get the love here. I think it's probably between Keaton and Garfield. I think yeah. Keaton, Garfield, and Isaac are the ones that really stand out here. Yeah, it's another one where is HBO pushing Isaac or are they pushing Firth with Staircase? Staircase is probably the one that they're pushing. I'd be know? pushing Isaac, but I would too. Yeah, I feel like Keaton with Dope Sick, even the mm-hmm. breadth of Dope Sick nominations everywhere else, kind of easy easy math there. Very mm-hmm. happy to see Amesh Patel here, as we mentioned before. Um, but that that that's where his, uh, his night ends, just get, yep. getting in the room. Good enough. Yeah, I mean, Garfield, definitely probably the most popular and mainstream and populist of the people in the mix here alongside Isaac, but yeah, I feel like it's Keaton pretty pretty, pretty easily. Yeah, that's who I had as well. The limited or anthology series, uh, Dope Sick, Inventing Anna, Pam and Tommy, The Dropout, and The White Lotus. White Lotus is probably the favorite, definitely yeah. the favorite, but Dope Sick, I think, has an outside shot here. Yep, I think that's it. Um, we've mentioned this before, but super disappointing that you have Inventing Anna and Pam and Tommy here, both kind of not well-liked series that were popular. <laughs> Boy, one of them was there, I could have got over it pretty easily, but to have both there when there's so many limited series to pick from, such as Station Eleven and We Own the City, mm-hmm. not being there, it's tough. But yeah, Dope Sick versus White Lotus, kind of the name of the whole limited category for the night. You wish there was more things in the mix, but that's just really not how it is this year. When you talk about the lobbying from the different networks, Pam and Tommy getting so much love, uh, almost getting a nominee in every category is such a clear like, oh, yeah, Hulu has a pretty strong lobbying body at this point for their shows. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I think White Lotus with Dope Sick, the, the dark horse here is the way to go. Um, yeah, I'd say put a few dollars on, on Dope Sick if you can. I think that I think that that one might surprise us, but um all right moving into the let's do comedy next let's end with drama because i think that's what we mm-hmm. enjoy talking about the most uh comedy um supporting actress we have alex borstein for the marvelous mrs Maisel, hannah einbinder for hacks janelle james for abbott elementary kate mckinnon snl uh sarah niles for ted lasso cheryl lee ralph for abbott elementary juno tempo for Te- juno temple for ted lasso and then hannah Waddingham for Ted Lasso. You know, I actually don't see any of the Ted Lasso people get, people getting this. I don't think Kate McKinnon's going to get it. I think this is going to come down to Alex Borstein, who just had a really great season with Maisel, and Maisel's consistently won. So right. I think I can see them getting a lot of love. Borstein has won this multiple times. Waddingham won it last year. McKinnon's been nominated many times. Yeah, I, I think I think that's kind of like a great a great choice for some kind of surprise where Waddingham's probably tapped as the favorite, but now you have like a, a top dog in the category showing back up with Alex Borstein. Uh, it'd be, I think it would really speak to like how strong is Maisel going to be mm-hmm. moving forward at the Emmys for its final season. Can Borstein come back and win this? Yeah. I think that's a good one to watch and also might speak to how uh, well Ted Lasso will do moving forward as well, given that, Last time around, Ted Lasso dominated the comedy Emmys because there was very few other comedies that had come out during that Emmy year just due to COVID and whatnot. So uh, I think that there's a lot, there's a little bit more intrigue than you'd expect here. Yeah. Uh, if I'm a betting person, which I am, I'd, I'd put money down on Borstein for this. I think this is going to uh, 
be a surprise of the night. Um, supporting actor in a comedy series, we have Anthony Kerrigan for Barry, Brett Goldstein for Ted Lasso, Tahiv Jamo for Ted Lasso, Nick Mohammed for Ted Lasso, Tony Shalhoub for The Marvelous Miss Maisel, Tyler James Williams for Ab Elementary, Henry Winkler for Barry, and Bowen Yang for SNL. So what, we have two former winners in this. We have uh, Shalhoub and Winkler. Dave, who's going to bring this home? Yeah, this is, this is another interesting one. I think past winner, Tony Shalhoub. Most recent winner, Brett Goldstein. Right. Past nominee, Anthony Kerrigan. Past winner, Henry Winkler, if I remember right. I, I think he won, yeah. Yeah. So Three winners. A lot of pedigree here, plus some new faces like Boney Yang, Tyler James Williams. Uh, Ted Lasso overrepresented here, alas. We've been over that. Yeah, I think this is another good one because Barry's showing back up, right? And yep. is Barry going to get the wins again? Uh, tough to say. You know, I'm kind of, I think I'm going to lean towards Ted Lasso here and go at Brett Goldstein. That, that's my pick as well. And he's just so hot right now, you know, uh, showing up in a Marvel movie recently. Yep. He's, yeah, he's, he's would be Roy a big Kent. one to get up there. So I would say Goldstein for that category as well with who would be your second choice, Shalhoub? I think my second choice would be Winkler, honestly, because yeah. I think there's a little bit more juice behind Barry than there is the fourth season of Maisel. I agree. Um, all right. Lead actress in a comedy series, Rachel Brosnahan for Mrs. Maisel. Quinta Brun- uh, Brun- Brunson, sorry, my eyes are yep. failing me, for Ab Elementary. Kaylee Cuoco for The Flight Attendant. Elle Fanning for The Great. Issa Rae for Insecure. And Gene Smart for Hacks. Dave, who you got? Yeah, it's another. It's kind of similar. Past winner with Rachel Brosnahan coming back into the category. And last year's winner, Gene Smart with Hacks. I feel like that's the fight there, but I don't. I think we cannot rule out Quinta Brunson. Perhaps she doesn't win this year, but in, uh, a winner in the future, perhaps instead with Abbott, which is going to be on NBC for a long time. Um, really happy to see Abbott rep- well represented here in its first year too as a new- newcomer. Great to see, but feeling like it's Gene Smart just because mm. she's been one of the biggest and most important actors on TV over the last 10 years. And yes, she won again last year, but I kind of feel like we're going to see her win again because Rosenhan won multiple times already too, if I remember right. So, yep. But yeah, yeah I think he gained to Brunson moving forward is probably a good bet to eventually win this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think this is her year though. I'm actually going to go outside the box here. Issa Rae getting the like lifetime achievement for insecure, which was, criminally under nominated throughout its run i think i think she gets the the love here from the the voters would be my call i mean i'd, I'd certainly support it tough for me to predict that though when insecure isn't nominated for comedy series this year yeah but uh, that would be awesome i would love to see that the final chance for insecure to win um all right lead actor in a comedy series donald glover for atlanta bill Hader for barry nicholas holt for the great Steve Martin for Only Murders in the Building and Martin Short for Only Murders in the Building and Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso. So um, Sudeikis is going to win this. But who else is even in the discussion? Hater? Yeah, I think this is a great category because you have last year's winner Sudeikis and past winners Donald Glover and Bill Hader Mm -hmm. plus two hugely popular screen legends in Steve Martin and Martin Short. And And Nicholas Holt. And also Nicholas Holt. (laughs) Thanks for showing up. Yeah. (laughs) It's yeah, you Sudeikis. know, I'm kind of rooting for it to not be Sudeikis, like if it was like Bill Hader again. Mm-hmm. But despite like the critical reception of 
Barry season three. I feel like it's Ted Lasso has been so hard to deny that it's probably Sudeikis. I mean, Atlanta not getting nominated for season three in series. Hard to pick Glover to win mm-hmm. on the comeback season here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and Mar- uh, the two Martins, like, I feel like they kind of cancel each other out. I know. Despite the, you know, that is the most popular Hulu comedy. Hulu does seem to have cap- uh, some capability at the Emmys. Of course, we me- you mentioned Pam and Tommy getting way over nominated. Mm-hmm. Handmaid's Tale, of course, a previous series winner. So, like, it's possible, but perhaps not possible when it's going up against, like, the juggernaut that has been Ted Lasso so far. But this will be a nice test because Sudeikis actually has, like, real competition in the category this year. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be Sudeikis, but I, I would be like happy to see Steve Martin win. You know, he's such a legend at this point that it would be cool to see him return out. the TV for such a long time as well. Yep. Comedy series. We have Abbott Elementary, Barry, Herbie Enthusiasm, Hacks, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, The Marvel- Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and What We Do in the Shadows. It should be What We Do in the Shadows if you're going for pure comedy. It's the yes. funniest show on television. But Dave, it's probably not going to win. Just glad it's here. What is yep. going to win? It's probably Ted Lasso, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I feel feel pretty yeah. confident in that one. I mean, Barry is a nice pick. I think Abbott Elementary would be a really inspired choice. Again, think to the future there. Mm-hmm. I don't think Shadows has a chance or Hacks has a chance. Curb, definitely not. Only Murders, I think pretty confidently no. So yeah, Lasso versus Barry... And I guess a, a past stalwart in Maisel as well. But yeah, I feel like it's if Lasso loses supporting actress, like that's about as good as we can do, I think, in taking down Ted Lasso right now. Yeah, it's such a beloved show. It's hard to pick against it, but maybe we'll, we'll be surprised. We'll see. Let's jump to the drama, though. Supporting actress in a drama series. We have Patricia Arquette for Severance, Julia Gardner for Ozark. Young Ho Yan for Squid Game, Christina Ricci for Yellow Jackets, Rhea Seahorn for Better Call Saul, Jay Smith Cameron for Succession, Sarah Snook for Succession, and Sydney Sweeney for Euphoria. Stacked. Stacked. Like, <laughs> I, 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 even as I was reading that, I think I changed my pick like three times. There's so many good yeah. people here. Who do you got? Uh, yeah, very interesting, right? Because Julia Garner has won twice, I believe for this role in Ozark here again for the final season. And then you have something that people wanted for so long. Reese Seahorn nominated for Saul at last. You have succession people here as well. I think my pick is Sarah Snook in succession. Mm-hmm. I want it to be Reese Seahorn, but I'm not confident in that one. I'd be very disappointed if Julia Garner won again, to be honest. No, no shade at her, but like, this is a deep category, yes, spread around. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Sarah Snook, given the breadth of succession nominations elsewhere. Yeah. You know, this is a category where it probably is going to be succession. But Better Call Saul ended right as the voting was yeah. like happening. It, was a little, it went from the 12th to the 22nd. I think this could be a Rhea Seahorn upset, man. I really do. And be I, so sick. I don't think Odenkirk's going to win it. I would love to see him get it. I think Cox is a, is a lock for lead actor, but I think Rhea Seahorn's going to pull this out. I really do. So, okay, I guess I'm calling my shot again. It's right. either going to be her or it's going to be Snook, I would say. 
Right. Yeah, if Seahorn did win, it'd kind of be the reverse Americans where Matthew Reese won and Kerry Russell didn't win in the final sure. season. The first win for that show in an acting category. So if one of them was to finally win at the end here, it would be amazing. So we can hope. Definitely what I want to see happen. Supporting actor in a drama series, Nicholas Braun for Succession, Billy Crudup for The Morning Show, Kieran Culkin for Succession, Park Hae-Soo for Squid Game, Matthew McFadden for Succession, John Tutoro and Christopher Walken for Severance, and Oh Young-Soo for Squid Game. All right, looking here. I think this is going to be Succession again. I think it's going to be Culkin. Me too. I, I think it's Culkin. I would also support Matthew McFadden winning. Yep. I think Culkin is just a bit showy of a performance, but Matthew McFadden is just as good um, as Tom in a very different way, of course, very different types of characters and performances. Mm-hmm. Either one of them would be awesome. And I think they're the best picks here, to be honest. I want the Culkin speech so bad. Like, I just know it'll be ridiculous and funny. I, th- I think if there's like a, an outside shot here, I'd probably give it to Walken, you know, big name. Uh, right. beloved Apple show. I'm sure they right. put a lot doing of doing TV, you know, exactly. unusual for him. So uh, I'd say Colkin is probably the, the favorite there. Lead actress in the drama series, Jodie Comer for Killing Eve, Laura Linney for Ozark, Melanie Linsky for Yellow Jacket, Sandra Oh for Killing Eve, Reese Witherspoon for The Morning Show, and Zendaya for Euphoria. This is a big of a category, in my opinion. K- Killing Eve getting two and The Morning Show getting one in here. Wow. Um, just wow that's tough zendaya um zendaya i think it's zendaya though right Zendaya, yes yeah for euphoria is the choice yeah i think like the the outside pick if anything is melanie linsky for yellow jackets seems like which is kind of crazy to think about the big names that are all the other choices here laura linney's been nominated multiple times for ozark comer has won before o has won before reese has been here for a while now but yeah i mean zendaya she was the youngest lead actress female winner ever. Mm-hmm. Sure, certainly is now the young, will be the youngest to win twice. You know, yep, exactly. She continues to be a juggernaut, but uh, just justly earned. Uh, the character of Rue on Euphoria is very showy, very good opportunity for Zendaya to really show the breadth of her talents. And uh, I loved Euphoria season two. Very, uh, very happy if she won again. She is so deserving. Um, uh, I, I want to see her win all the awards and can't wait to see her in Dune. So uh, just everything she does. Great. Uh, lead actor in a drama series, Jason Bateman for Ozark, Brian Cox for Succession, Lee Young Ye for Squid Game, Bob Odenkirk for Better Call Saul, Adam Scott for Severance, and Jeremy Strong for Succession. You know, I'd love to see Odenkirk get the look. He's not. Bateman, not going to get it. Scott, not going to get it. Sorry, Squid Game probably not going to win anything even though you were a sensation it's really between brian cox and jeremy strong i think it's going to be cox yeah it's strong a season last time right yeah he did uh, yeah they'd be nice then to spread it around here I, I agree and i think cox really got to show out this season so yep big yep. logan season and that probably means that Succession is going to win for drama series. But well, let's go through the nominees anyway. Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, Stranger Things, Succession, Yellow Jackets. You know, I don't think this is as strong of a year as there's been in the past. But I think Succession and Better Call Saul alone are like quite the, the duel here. 
you know, I would say don't discount Squid Game 2, which has a lot of acting nominations, more than mm-hmm. expected, especially in the supporting categories. So I would not be shocked if Squid Game actually comes out ahead of Saul for like second place. Mm. But it's really hard to pick against Succession, given the breadth of nominees it has this year. And the fact that Succession Season 3 was the best show of 2021, like it, right. it, it deserves it. And I'd be happy to, to, to see it win here. That'd be great. It's going to be succession, though. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess if there were any other categories you really wanted to call your shot on here. I would say you can look at the creative arts winners that have happened so far that kind of give you a sense of what shows are trending up versus down when they get other down ballot wins. So you can look into that if you want to kind of get ahead here. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know, nothing really comes to mind. as like anything else I'm really looking for at smaller awards, you know. I'm always rooting for someone to beat John Oliver in Variety Talk series. I think Trevor Noah does deserve it to win with The Daily Show, but I just don't think he's anyone's ever going to take Oliver down, it feels like. Yeah, Noah would be the only one in that category who has a shot. Um, you, know, you mentioned the creative arts categories. I forgot to mention at the top, my guy, Tim Robinson, for, uh, from I Think You Should Leave, won for Outstanding Actor in a Short Form Comedy or Drama Series. So just wanted to you know, shout him out. He he deserves love. He's he's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, you know, it's kind of crazy to me reading over this competition program list. I mean, like nailed it is on the competition program list outside of like Survivor. <laughs> like I know what I mean, RuPaul wins it every year. Top yeah. Chef is always nominated but never wins. Like Lizzo's watch boring. out for the big girls could surprise people this year. Yeah, I'm always like, down for anything new with those yeah. kind of, these kind of categories. Uh, I guess I'm rooting for Station Eleven to win writing limited yes, series. It's going to be the only chance to win. I'm also really rooting for what we do in the shadows for comedy writing. Two yes. episodes nominated there. Um, just something to kind of really acknowledge just how really talented that shadows writers room is. You know, with uh, there's there's so many like so much good stuff in, in there, and like there's just so many like magical. 30 minute episodes that they've made and are just like you said the funniest things you'll see all year so if you can't win the series i think winning the writing category is a nice consolation i suppose yeah that, that would be nice um but I, I hope i hope we get some surprises it would make the show a lot more interesting than i suspect it will be so anyways we're gonna wrap up there for this week dave what do we got for next week uh yeah next week we have a ton of music coming out. New records from Santa Gold and Ari Lennox and hip hop sensation Yeet. We'll touch on all of that. Interested to hear about that. Of course, we'll talk about the Emmys after they happen. And what we do in the shadows will be wrapping up. We'll talk about season four. And Disney's uh, D23 Expo will be happening. Curious to see if we get any additional news so soon after San Diego Comic Con. We'll be talking about all that and more. So hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod and go to our Twitter at nostalgiapod to follow the podcast any way you can there, including our now our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. I'll catch you next week. Peace out. Hey.